Welcome back to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. If you're just joining, earlier in the program, we heard from Jan Williams, a close family friend of the Carters. She's an elder and volunteer at Maranatha Baptist Church, where her husband, George, serves as a deacon. She described how the politics of segregation led to the founding of the church that the Carter family would make their spiritual home when they returned to Plains in 1981. While there have been many stories and reflections on President Carter, the Sunday school teacher, we're going to widen the lens now to take a look at how his faith evolved in public life. How did he go from a school board member in Sumter County who supported segregated school buildings to declaring that the era of racial discrimination is over? These are some of the questions religious historian Randall Balmer tackles in his biography, of Jimmy Carter's faith life. Carter is a unique political figure, deeply rooted in the born-again evangelical subculture that Bomber knew well. I was a student at Trinity College in Deerfield, Illinois, uh, an evangelical liberal arts college. And Jimmy Carter burst onto the national scene in the early 1970s. At that time, I was struck by someone who was being taken seriously as a presidential candidate who was unabashed about saying that he was a born-again Christian. And what was so striking to me was that, unlike the rest of us who claimed that moniker, he didn't seem to be ashamed or abashed about it. He was very uh, willing to talk about his faith. And I've often said that once he announced that he was a born-again Christian, he sent every journalist in New York City to his Rolodex to figure out what in the world he was talking about. But uh, I knew what he was talking about because this was my world. This is the world in which I was reared. And so that was striking to me. And I followed his uh, political career, of course, Um, even campaigned a couple of days for him (laughs) at the Deerfield train station in Deerfield, Illinois, when he was running for president and followed his career. The reason I wanted to write a biography that took his faith seriously precisely because he took his faith seriously, and it profoundly shaped his life and certainly his presidency. Let's talk about that title, Redeemer. It can have multiple meanings. Why Redeemer? How did, how did that come about? I think there are several instances in his life when he functioned as a kind of Redeemer, uh, both for himself and, and for his nation. For himself, Uh, There were a couple of moments uh, where he faced a kind of personal crisis. Uh, The first major one was following his defeat in his run for governor in 1966. And he lost to, of all people, the arch-segregationist Lester Maddox. And Jimmy Carter was utterly disconsolate after that defeat. According to uh, friends in Plains, Georgia, he went back to Plains, of course, his hometown. And they would see him just walking around town uh, dejectedly with his head down and trying to figure out what direction his life should take. In the course of that time, his sister, who was a Pentecostal evangelist, Ruth Carter Stapleton, came back to Plains and uh, she had a, a long walk with her brother. And the result of that was Jimmy Carter making a renewed commitment to his faith. And that really set him on a trajectory for a lot of things. Most immediately, what he did was undertake two mission trips with other Southern Baptist laymen, uh, one of them to Lock Haven, Pennsylvania, and another to Springfield, Massachusetts, 
where they literally went around town knocking on doors, telling people about Jesus. The first time I met uh, Mr. Carter was at Emory University some years ago. You know, there were maybe a dozen people there. And what he wanted to talk about at that moment was what he called the unsurpassed joy of telling other people about Jesus. He usually referred to Jesus as Christ. This was what he wanted to talk about. So I think that's one instance of uh, Jimmy Carter being a redeemer. I think a second instance occurred after he did win the governorship of Georgia in 1970. Now, this is, uh, this is not an easy story to tell because it uh, certainly tarnishes his luster a little bit. Uh, what he did toward the end of that campaign is he really did cater to some of the segregationist vote in that campaign. And uh, I think he was pretty embarrassed about that. He never, never wanted to talk about it. But uh, when he took the oath of office as governor of Georgia on, I believe, January 12, 1971, the most memorable line from the, his inaugural address was telling the people of Georgia that the time for racial segregation was over. And in fact, as governor, he really did work to try to level some of those barriers uh, of, of segregation. For example, he put a portrait of Martin Luther King Jr. in the State House in Georgia, which you know at that time was a fairly radical move. Uh, he also sought various policies, uh, prison reform and so forth, in order to try to attenuate some of the effects of uh, racial injustice and segregation. So I think that's the second instance of Jimmy Carter being a rede redeemer. And I think third is his presidency itself. Let's remember that he was elected president in the wake of uh, Watergate, the scandal with uh, Nixon. And uh, he promised in the course of that campaign, never knowingly to lie to the American people. I'll never tell a lie. I'll never make a misleading statement. I'll never betray the confidence that any of you has in me. Lyndon Johnson had lied to us about Vietnam. Richard Nixon had lied about pretty much everything. And Carter comes along as a candidate for president, promising never knowingly to lie to the American people. And whatever you think of his presidency, uh, no one has seriously accused him of breaking that pledge. The fourth would be his post-presidency itself, the extraordinary efforts he made to, in effect, redeem himself and uh, redeem his presidency as a, an ex-president. When President Carter ran for office and spoke about being born again, what did evangelical life look like in the late 60s, early 70s in America? Well, it's, you know, and I uh, I will anoint myself as something of an expert on that because I was very much in that world and what I call the evangelical subculture. My father was a minister for 40 years in the Evangelical Free Church, and this was my life. And I can say without uh, fear of contradiction that we were largely apolitical. Uh, that is, the, all evangelicals were. I mean, many evangelicals were not even registered to vote in the middle decades of the 20th century. And so Jimmy Carter comes along in the early 1970s, and what he does really is lure evangelicals into the political arena. Now, uh, they may not have agreed with him on every issue, but I think many evangelicals voted for Jimmy Carter in 1976 out of the sheer novelty of being able to vote for one of their own. I'm very certain of this, actually, that his share of the evangelical vote would have been even higher much higher if it were not for the Playboy interview that was released several weeks before the 1976 election. That turned some evangelicals uh, against Jimmy Carter, whereas he was headed for a landslide victory before that uh, magazine article appeared. 
And it, just for those of us who don't have that same kind of memory. I mean, you're not as old as I am. <laughs> I, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I remember Billy Graham revivals coming on television. Sure. I remember um, people talking about religion and faith, evangelical faith, in a very deeply personal way. And there was a lot of emphasis on the end times. Yes. And I remember, you know, being afraid <laughs> to be really candid sure, during sure. that period of time it was like nuclear war and communism and the end of times. You're exactly right. And actually, some of your listeners uh, will probably remember uh, a film called A Thief in the Night, which was produced actually in 1972 and it had to deal with the end times, the second coming of Jesus and so forth. And uh, I guess I will uh, burnish my credentials as being a product of evangelicalism and the evangelical subculture by disclosing that the director of that film was my Sunday school teacher. The inspiration for that film was my father's Sunday evening sermons at the Westchester Evangelical Free Church in Des Moines, Iowa. And my father played the so-called good preacher in that film. (laughs) Yes, you're absolutely right. There was a lot of emphasis on uh, uh, the apocalypse, the end of time, and so forth. And by the way, that helps to explain why evangelicals in the middle decades of the 20th century were not all that interested in politics, because Jesus was coming at any moment. Why worry? Why bother with political engagement? Uh, this world is corrupt and corrupting. And for that reason, Politics was regarded as something, you know, let's not worry about it. It's not all that important because Jesus is coming at any moment. And I'm, I'm not exaggerating when I say that. That was really the, the mindset for many, many evangelicals in those decades of the 20th century. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. This week, we're talking about Jimmy Carter's religious life and leadership during a tumultuous period in American history. My guest is Randall Bomber, raised in the evangelical subculture. He witnessed Carter's rise and, as he describes it, bursting onto the national scene, talking openly about his personal beliefs. It was a time in the 20th century when evangelicals seemed more focused on individual salvation and preparing for the end times. In a religious biography about our 39th president, Bomber reveals how the rise and fall of President Carter's political fortunes mirror the transformation of evangelical engagement in American religious politics. Let's get back to the conversation. What switched? What happened? Because today in 2023, you can't talk about, for example, engagement in political life in the Republican Party without talking about the influence, role, and power of the evangelical vote. Yes, it's a, it's a long story. In many ways, a sad story, but you're absolutely right. The religious right become the backbone of the Republican Party, much the way that labor unions once were the spine of the Democratic Party. Now, how did that come about? It actually happens during Jimmy Carter's presidency, and the, there's all sorts of paradox here, all sorts of irony. Uh, that is to say, an, an evangelical president, uh, born-again Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, uh, 
is elected president in 1976 with the help of evangelical voters, who then turned dramatically and radically against him four years later. Well, how do we begin to explain it? First of all, you have to acknowledge that being president in the late 1970s was not easy. I've often speculated what would have happened had Reagan won the Republican nomination in 1976, gone on to win the presidency in 1976. I suspect very strongly on the basis of what was happening in the country and the world in the late 1970s that Ronald Reagan, like Carter, would have been a one-term president. That is to say, you had the Arab oil embargo skyrocketing interest rates. You had the taking of the hostages in Iran, all sorts of things. 1979, just kind of everything blew apart for Jimmy Carter as president. It just was a terrible year. Uh, Everything from the Three Mile Island nuclear disaster to disco night at uh, Comiskey Park in uh, Chicago, everything just went wrong. And the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And the Soviet, yes, exactly. We have to acknowledge that uh, behind the scenes, there was an effort that was actually coordinated by Billy Graham to find an alternative to Carter going into the 1980 presidential election. Graham convenes a meeting of Protestant ministers at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport Hotel. And they, over a couple of days, they discuss uh, or strategize how they can effectively defeat Jimmy Carter in 1980. Now, Graham was rather duplicitous about this, but I won't get into the details of that. So that was working against him as well. And uh, I asked Carter, when did uh, when did you become aware that these uh, people were uh, ganging up on you, in effect? And he said, uh, my sister, Ruth Carter Stapleton, she told me, he said, Billy Graham, out there at state capitals all across the country saying bad things about you. And Carter was just utterly dumbfounded by this. He says, you know, why? I mean, he, he couldn't figure it out. But by that time, this movement was snowballing and uh, they were determined to turn Jimmy Carter out of office, which, of course, they did. I can't help but think about Kristen Dumais' writing on masculinity Mm -hmm. intertwined into this vision of Christian exceptionalism in the evangelical world. How was Carter portrayed in faith circles? Well, I think that's right. In 1980, uh, he was portrayed as being weak, not up to the task, and so forth. And the fact that he would not retaliate militarily against Iran for the taking of the hostages, uh, rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And he always was uh, very clear about the importance of military restraint. And this gets back to Kristen's uh, point about masculinity. And Reagan came in, you know, with swashbuckling, and you know, we'll do what we have to do, sort of thing. And uh, that appealed to a lot of people. In his post-presidential life. Um Faith continued to play a role. There were oftentimes headlines, his break with the Southern Baptist Convention. Was that something that you surprised you? No, I've often portrayed his relationship with the Southern Baptists as being that of a, a troubled marriage. That is to say, you have these periods of trial separation, and then they try to reconcile, and then they say, no, we can't do it. A quick anecdote here. Uh, the conservative takeover took place in June of 1979, and shortly thereafter, the new leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, all of whom are really quite quite conservative, people would say fundamentalist, come to visit Jimmy Carter in, in, the, in the oil office, and they have conversation together and, and prayer and so forth. At the end of the conversation, one of the preachers, Bailey Smith, said to Carter, he said, Mr. President, some of us are praying that you will give up your religion of secular humanism. And Carter was utterly 
dumbfounded by this. And he went home that night, that is, to the uh, residential portion of, of the White House and asked Rosalind, what's secular humanism? He had no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> and that really characterized, I think, his, his post-presidency and his relationship with the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, primarily over the issue of women and women's ordination and women's place in the church. And uh, he was very, very clear in his condemnation of this uh, sort of hyper-masculine approach that leaders of the Southern Baptist uh, Convention were taking. He's accused of secular humanism because he won't carry the uh, political agenda. And later in Faith, the book that he wrote in 2019, he makes this robust argument and defense of separation of church-state and religious liberty. Talk to me a little bit about the connecting that argument to how he viewed those principles rooted in his own religious history and in the religious history of Baptists. Jimmy Carter, without any question, was very much opposed to abortion, but he also recognized that the Supreme Court had spoken on the matter. It was the law of the land. And as president, he needed to observe this line of separation between church and state. Since the 1979 takeover, the Southern Baptists in particular, but other Baptists also, have given up their role as watchmen on the wall of separation between church and state. Jimmy Carter never did. He also recognized that the separation of church and state has been overwhelmingly successful in American life, and it has created a vibrant, salubrious religious culture because it allows various religious groups to compete with one another rather than having one group or another have a a special sanction from the state. And Jimmy Carter uh, recognized that, and he remained uh, faithful to his Baptist principles throughout his life. My predecessor, Maureen Fiedler, described him as a leader in interfaith work, citing his attempts to be a broker of peace in the Middle East and speaking out uh, on human rights abuses, even when it wasn't popular. It wasn't popular, and he was very vocal about this, uh, angering many of our allies that tended to be totalitarian, uh, many of them. Uh, But he also succeeded in freeing some political prisoners in the course of his uh, career. So that was very important to him as well. After he published uh, Palestine and talked about Israel functioning as an apartheid state in the legal sense, there was quite a backlash. I think that was very difficult for him because he saw himself as uh, kind of an impartial broker, and he was certainly with the Camp David Accords and those those negotiations over 22 days. And and for him to to have people turn on him for his understanding of what was necessary to come to peace in the Middle East, I think was very very difficult for him. And he he did answer his critics. Uh, but at the same time, he was not afraid to stand by his uh, criticism. And much of his understanding of, of the Middle East came from personal experience there. I remember one passage in, in that book, he talks about how Israeli soldiers uh, really uh, harassing Palestinians uh, unnecessarily. And he was very, very offended by that. And that helped to shape his views. The Jewish uh, community 
really came down pretty hard on him for his views on this. But uh, he stood by them. Uh, he continued to believe throughout his uh, his life that the two-state solution was the only path toward peace in the Middle East. And I should probably say that his interest in the Middle East, we have to acknowledge, has had to be part of his uh, religious views. That is to say, he understood Israel as the Holy Land, as he called it, uh, a place that had historical importance uh, religiously as well as politically. Carter wanted to do something to try to bring peace in the Middle East, and he did so in part because of his uh, religious views and his religious con- convictions. I found in the archive a speech that Jimmy Carter gave in the late 1970s with concern of a loss of confidence in government and in leaders and in the ability of the American people to solve problems. It just felt prescient. (laughs) Yeah. Well, he's, he's always taken the long view. And I think that's part because uh, he was a real student. Uh, he he read a lot, voracious reader, and uh, he understood what was going on in, in ways that you know, perhaps most of us don't see. I think uh, Jimmy Carter's great contribution to politics in this country is his integrity. And if you look at the last half century of presidential politics, and you kind of take the bookends of Richard Nixon on the one hand and Donald Trump on the other. And in the middle there, you have Jimmy Carter, who promises never knowingly to lie to the American people. And whatever you think of Carter, whatever you think of his presidency, he did not default on that pledge. And that, I think, is a remarkable accomplishment. Randall Bomber is the Mandel Family Professor of Arts and Sciences at Dartmouth College, an Episcopal priest and the author of more than a dozen books. He lives in White River Junction, Vermont. In this week's show notes, you can find links to the articles and books discussed. We are also releasing in the podcast feed this week a little extra, an encore of my predecessor Maureen Fiedler's interview with President Jimmy Carter back in 2014. To catch that special conversation, you have to subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. Just search Interfaith Voices, or you can stream it from our website at interfaithradio.org. That's all for this week's show. If you missed any part, you can stream it online at interfaithradio.org. While you're there, you can also learn about us, read the show notes, sign up for our newsletter, and explore the archives. Music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Binger. This week's episode was produced by Kevin McCarthy. Inspired is a production of Interfaith Voices. We're a nonprofit, and we rely on the generous support of our listeners to bring you this show. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan. Remember to stay safe, stay well, and stay connected. I'll see you next week.